Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход В том подъезде, как в поместье, проживает черный кот Он в усы усмешку прячет, темнота ему, как щит Все коты поют и плачут Hello, world. How are you? Welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Every week we pick a new book on Russia or Eurasia and talk to the author. This week, we talked to Christopher Ward about his book, Brezhnev's Folly, The Building of BAM and Late Soviet Socialism. The standard view of the Soviet 1970s is that it was a time of economic stagnation and political and ideological rigidity, exemplified by a geriatric leadership and widespread societal malaise and apathy. However, this view is slowly changing, thanks to books like Chris Ward's Brezhnev's Folly. Through his examination of the construction of the Baikal Amur Mainline Railway, or BAM, we see how a nascent environmental movement challenged Soviet Prometheanism, the ways the BAM zone served as a site for youth enthusiasm, freedom and individualism, but also crime, sex, and corruption, and the challenges of social cohesion among the many men, women, ethnic minorities, and foreigners who worked on the railroad. Namely, from Brezhnev's folly, we get a more complex view of the period, as Soviet idealism and reality clashed in what would be the USSR's last attempt to build a path to the future. So without further delay, I give you my interview with Chris Ward. Hi, Chris. Hi, Sean. Uh, Welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to talk about your book, Brezhnev's Folly, The Building of BAM and Late Soviet Socialism. Um, Just to begin, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got interested in Russian history and what drew you to the Soviet 1970s? All right. Well, I suppose you could say I'm one of the last children of the Cold War. Um, I grew up uh, in the late 70s and early 80s being told that the Soviet Union was, to quote Ronald Reagan, you know, the famous quote, infamous quote, the evil empire. Uh, One of the things that got me really interested in Russia from a very early age, I think I was all of 11, was a um, made-for-TV movie that appeared on ABC in 1983 called The Day After. Oh my god, that was exactly my story. Go go ahead. Amazing. (laughs) How many people know this? Uh, It's frightened me, it scared me, and I wanted to know know thy enemy, I guess, supposedly. And I didn't have any knowledge of Russian, but there were a lot of movies coming out at that time about Russia. Another one was... um, uh, 2010, uh, the sequel to 2001. There's a lot of Russian spoken in that. Uh, and then later, movies like Hunt for Red October. And it was just a bevy of, you know, kind of uh, late Soviet things going on. And I guess one of the reasons I was uh, particularly interested in Russia of the time that I focused on, which is the 1970s and 80s of the Brezhnev years, is that I am a, a product of that era as well. And I remember Brezhnev's death in November 1982. I, I was 10 years old, and I was already interested in, in Russian things, you know, from a child's perspective. But uh, this was um, 
just something that uh, you know was born out of fear, I suppose, as much as anything. And then beginning to learn more about it and realizing that, you know, of course, we weren't each other's enemies. And they, and in fact, you, I'm sure you know this as well. They were told the same thing about us: is that we were, you know, bent on their destruction. So it's very interesting to see, you know, having been there so many times now, that they were told exactly what we were told as children. So that was the genesis of my interest in uh, Russia and especially the, the late Soviet period. Mm-hmm. And why did you, when you went to graduate school, why did you end up focused? Because most people, like for take me for example, who has a similar story about the evil empire and whatnot, um, I went into the 1920s, well, 1920s, 1930s is what really fascinated me. Um, why, besides the own kind of your own personal background, why, what interested you academic, intellectually about the 1970s? Right. Well, I guess supposedly, um, this is what I keep hearing, is that at the time, uh, the Brezhnev era was the realm, I kept being told, of political scientists. And I was starting to argue that perhaps we could look at this from a historical perspective. And as you probably know, especially when I was doing the research for this, beginning in the kind of mid-1990s, there was almost nothing on the Brezhnev period, historically speaking. I mean, practically nothing. And I remember going to conferences when I was first doing research and being told that you can't do this. It's It's too recent. Uh, there's too much presentism in on this, and I rejected that. And I, I think now I've been vindicated a little bit uh, in the subsequent decade or so. But it was something that because there was so little out there from the historian's perspective of, of any kind of history, social, cultural, political, what have you, aside from just some criminology studies, which you know are, are beneficial but not the complete story, that's one of the reasons I picked this. And one thing I say in my preface uh, that you may have seen is that um, when I was still in high school, you know, not having known Russian at that time, uh, there was a movie, uh, a part of what was called the Glasnost Film Festival. It was a compilation of films, documentary films, uh, from from the Gorbachev period, the early Gorbachev years. And one of them was called Band Zone Permanent Residence, directed by Mikhail Pavlov. And this is a short film. It's about 25 minutes long, but the story is very compelling. It documents uh, the people who were left behind after bomb was supposedly declared complete in 1984. And it was one of the most depressing yet compelling narratives I had seen at the time. And I kind of filed it away in the back of my memory as something that I was interested in. And, and then later, m- many years later, in fact, uh, uh, nine years later, uh, when the time came to pick a dissertation topic, I was like, what about this railway? What about this Baikalamor mainline? And I realized that this was a, a more than I had ever expected. Um, uh, as I, I mentioned in the book, uh, this project dominated Soviet discourse, at least official discourse, for for 10 years. Uh, as a, just an absolute avalanche of newspaper articles and books and uh, uh, short films and all these things made about it. So uh, the, the initial interest was uh, a thing to get me interested in it. But afterwards, I realized that I was just jumping into this enormous pool of information. And it's one of the reasons it took me so long to get the book done is that uh, simply mining the, 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 the archives and a lot of this took, took a matter of years. So it was, in fact, a, a larger project than I anticipated at the outset. Right. And I'm sure that stumbling into a period like the 1970s, which has no historiography, focusing on such a, uh, an event or, a, a, or um, a construction project in this case that dominates the discourse of the time is a good way to kind of, you know, find something and focus on. Right, exactly. And one of the things I wanted to challenge, and I hope I make this clear in the book, is that um, for years when I was taught about Brezhnev, uh, before I got to, to graduate school, all we heard about was Zestoy, this notion of stagnation, stagnation, stagnation. And I argue that's not the part of it that's the most compelling. And in fact, I, I try to reject that term altogether. That was a term, of course, that was placed upon the period after the fact. And one of the things I try to do in the book is argue that Bum was not stagnant. In fact, it was very much dynamic. 
And it was an example of how Soviet society never stagnated. And uh, perhaps from a political perspective, one could argue that. But uh, socially, uh, culturally, uh, in terms of all kinds of things, which I, I mentioned in the book, there's a lot of very dynamic things going on. And I, I wanted to argue that we can't simply dismiss Brezhnev as a period of stagnation. It's an 18-year period that deserves more than that word. And I think you're absolutely correct in that. And there are a lot of issues in your book that we'll get to that it really surprised me. And, and, and we'll talk about those. First off, well, why don't you talk about the Baikal-Amur mail line railway or bomb? Um, what is this and, and what were the reasons for its construction? Right. Well, this is one of the greatest projects of the Soviet period. In fact, one of the largest projects of the second half of the 20th century in terms of resources and money spent and uh, effort and things like that. But the basic intent of this railway was to build something that would be much farther to the north of the Trans-Siberian. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to look at the maps that I have, uh, but one of them, the first one shows, and for, for our listeners here, you can't see this, but uh, Baum runs to the north of Lake Baikal, whereas the Trans-Sib, Trans-Siberian, uh, runs to the south. And there had been ever since uh, the 1950s and certainly to the 1960s with the Sino-Soviet split at the end of that decade, a concern that if there was a war between China and Russia, between China and the Soviet Union, that perhaps China would take this Trans-Siberian Railway, which at the time was the only link uh, between the Asian part of the country, you know, Vladivostok, Khabarovsk, Komsomolsk, Namuri, all these cities in the east, and the European uh, part of the country, Moscow and you know, Leningrad and places like that. And one of the earliest reasons for Bonn was to build an alternative route that's much farther from the Chinese border. In fact, it runs several hundred miles, uh, in some cases, uh, north of the border of China. So that was kind of the initial uh, reason. And then um, one of the things I talk a little bit about in the book is that this became more important than just that. It wasn't just a railway for a railway's sake. It was built for infrastructure, but it was also built uh, for uh, uh, to, to give a whole generation of Soviet youth who had basically had nothing to do, as far as the state was concerned, uh, a raison d'etre, uh, some reason for being. Uh, you know, their parents had served in the Great Patriotic War, uh, the brothers and sisters in the Virgin Lands, and now it was their turn. It was t time for their signature project, and the, the state envisioned bomb as something that would uh, focus the, the, the energies of where wayward Soviet youth, as it, it understood them to be wayward uh, in the late 60s and early 70s uh, on this project. So that was kind of the genesis. And by the way, I don't know if you'll ask this later, but one question I'm often asked is, how did the Soviet Union afford this? It was a massive project. I, I attempt to estimate the cost in my book, which is impossible to know for sure. Uh, but one thing I try to tell people who ask that question is that in 1980, you know, right in the middle of this project, the Soviet Union was the world's largest petroleum exporter. Uh, the country was awash in petrodollars, and it could afford to spend billions of dollars on this uh, on this railway, on this uh, project that took uh, you know well over 20 years uh, to finally complete. But that was one of the things that it could afford to do, and it thought that uh, giving youth rather than slave labor, which had been you know basically the form of labor in many earlier projects, the opportunity to build this as its signature project, uh, with the Komsomol being in charge of this, of course, uh, was the state's intent. So this is a different kind of project. This is not a Stalinist era. This is a distinctly a Brezhnevian endeavor. And I wanted to look at it because it is, I think, in many ways unique in that regard. Yeah, actually, it's interesting that you bring up the issue that bomb could serve as a way to inspire youth to give them their own so-called revolution in a way, because I find similar parallels in my own work on, on the Komsomol in the 1920s, that the, the five-year plan and collectivization served as a similar thing to give them their own revolution because the people before them who served in the Civil War, they were too young to serve in the Civil War, so this acted as a kind of faux Civil War or reenactment in some cases. So that's quite an interesting 
interesting uh, premise. Um, so right after BAM's inception, the, the plan to go forward, um, you describe a debate that breaks out between advocates of Soviet Prometheanism on, and environmentalists. And now the environmentalist aspect is, I think, what's really interesting because um, we don't really know much about this. And, and, and to your thesis that uh, the Brezhnev era isn't stagnant, environmental movement and concerns is certainly one um, uh, proof of this. Um, talk a bit about this Soviet Prometheism and environmentalism and what was the general nature of the debate? All right. Well, let, let's speak for for, uh, for a moment about Prometheanism. This, of course, is a very old uh, rhetoric. It's not unique to the Soviet Union or even to Russia, but it's the notion that nature is there for mankind's good. I mean, even in the Old Testament, there's this notion that the world was created for man's benefit, uh, that all resources are there in unlimited supply for we as a species, particularly man, uh, to exploit. And the notion specific to Bomb was is that if you build this railway through this inhospitable place, uh, you know, a taiga, a forest, uh, swamps, a seismically active place, that it's going to allow an entire area of resources to be exploited. And that is scientifically valid. There's no doubting that as well. And by the way, one of the things that Bomb does reveal is that how much Siberia uh, means to the Soviet Union and, of course, to Russia today in terms of resources. I mean, in one part of this bomb zone that I talk about, the area where the railway was built in what used to be called Yakutia, it's now called the Republic of Sakha, there's more natural gas there than in the rest of the world combined. I mean, it's all buried under permafrost, but it's all there. And this Promethean notion was if we can build this railway, it will allow us as the Soviet Union to exploit these resources. Um, we're independent in resources now, but we want to sell more, apropos to my point about the Soviet Union being the largest petroleum exporter uh, during the early 1980s. And this idea never lost uh, traction uh, during the project. There were always people who said that environmental damage is uh, irrelevant, uh, that the state really shouldn't care about any environmental or ecological damage that's done in the name of this project, uh, the ends uh, uh, justify the means. Uh, on the other hand, and this is interesting that this is being debated at the same time, is the other side of it, you mentioned this environmental movement, which is very interesting. It's not just people saying that we need to protect the environment because the state is telling us not to. In fact, the environmental movement was attempted to be appropriated by the state itself. It's one of the most interesting things about that, that chapter that you're referencing about this movement is that the state said we can be Promethean, but we also want to be ecologically sensitive, which sounds contradictory perhaps to us in the West. But from the Soviet perspective, you could argue about resource extraction at the same time doing that extraction at maximum capacity in an environmentally sensitive way. And that is nothing new. Uh, that notion of environmental protection as the state determined it. Uh, had been espoused for, for some time. But what's interesting in this period, in the 1970s and 1980s, which people like Doug Wiener first uh, talked about, is that there are private individuals who start to say the state's ethological ethos is incorrect, it's invalid, it's insincere. We legitimately espouse an environmental protection ethos. And that's something I tried to look at in the book as well. So if you want to argue it this way, you could argue that there are three competing voices. There's the Promethean voice, there's the official ecological perspective, and then the private or, or unofficial ecological perspective. And all three of these are kind of fighting out uh, rhetorical space in the press. 
uh, interestingly enough, and uh, it's interesting, even in the 1970s, you'll see this, people beginning to express an environmental consciousness that is not necessarily approved by the state. And, and it's fascinating today. I mean, we take it for granted today that these things exist now. But in the 1970s, especially in the Soviet Union, these were very nascent movements. And I think I, I can trace the beginning of this partially to uh, this railway. To This is one of the places where you can really focus it on that nascent, uh, away from the center, unofficial uh, ecological consciousness. So those are the three, I would say, competing voices that are going on in terms of environmental and resource questions uh, during the time. Okay, well, let's have you talk more about the, the private uh, environmental groups, because this is actually quite interesting. Um, there are, there's the, the, the ones you, fo couple that you focus on, the All-Russian Society for the Protection of Nature, or VOOP, um, mm -hmm. the Lake Baikal Environmental Committee, and then the Komsomol Spotlight, which is quite interesting. And all of these are, are, are semi, they're of course, come out of state or social institutions, um, but they seem to take on, an, an as you suggest, an independent voice on their own. Uh, talk a little bit about them and their campaigns around BAM and whether they had any impact. Right. I would argue that they were given a, a great deal of latitude. And this is a thesis I really try to explore in all the chapters, is that the state allowed various constituencies, whoever they were, in this case, environmental groups, to have more latitude out here in you know, barren Siberia uh, than they, of course, had in other parts of the country. Uh, one, of, one of the things I, I try to argue is that the state uh, tried to use uh, its official environmental groups, like VOOP especially, uh, to espouse its official ecological message, its official conservationist message. But within those groups, as the state said, you must uh, speak the way we are telling you in terms of environmental sensitivity, there are individuals within those groups who begin to articulate their own environmental perspective, to begin to say, uh, we're not buying into the fiction that the state is interested in environmental protection. We can see out on the railway how much damage is being done, but nonetheless, we're going to use these groups like uh, VOOP, like the Spotlight and other groups to argue for a legitimate protectionist ethos and to use these institutions as they really should be used rather than just means of supporting the state's propaganda that it is uh, protecting the environment. And that's one of the compelling things about this is the use of public institutions to voice private or unofficial ideas. Uh, it's a very Soviet thing. I mean, in the West, in civil society, you don't have to worry about that. You can have your private sector. But in a place like the Soviet Union where legitimate, you know, open private discourse or I should say unofficial discourse isn't permitted, uh, even to the degree as it existed in the, in the Soviet Union during the Brezhnev years, you've got to use those official platforms. And this is where I find this to be more uh, clearly expressed out there in the region, in the BAM zone, than back home in places like Moscow and Leningrad where you really didn't have the chance to articulate an independent theory, and, and here they do. So uh, it's, it's interesting to see that a lot of these people don't uh, turn green, so to speak. They don't become environmentally aware until they go to the railway and see the absolute devastation that's being uh, created in, 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 in the name of progress. Uh, these people may have been concerned about the environment wherever they came from, but now they're seeing basically, to use the Soviet term, virgin territories being uh, destroyed, uh, clear-cut, uh, you know, totally transformed. It makes them environmentally conscious in the way that the state didn't anticipate. And that's one of the things that you could argue after the fact becomes one of the uh, nails in the coffin of the Soviet Union is an environmental movement that grows beyond the state's ability to control it. 
So I think we can see the beginnings of that here on, in BAM because there are a lot of people, young people, uh, you know, 500,000 people over 10 years who see this firsthand. And many of them, not all, of course, but many of them, I think, come away with an independent ecological consciousness that the state did not tell them to think and that they uh, can find isn't controlled by what the state tells them to believe. Mm -hmm. I always found this a quite interesting thing throughout Soviet history that the institutions um, try to control the discourse of, of, of people. But really, when it comes down to it, the people have a tendency to fill those institutions with their own content and push the boundaries of that. And you certainly see that in your case very clearly. Um, again, going to the thesis that the 1970s isn't this politically stagnant time. Um, it seems quite vibrant. Um, let's move on to uh, the idea of remoteness in, in, in the construction of BAM in the Far East. Uh, of course, it's under incredibly difficult conditions, harsh climates. What would inspire someone to volunteer and work there? Well, there are a couple of different reasons that I speak of. One is, and I don't think we should discount this, is genuine enthusiasm. I think it's very easy these days to say that everyone who went there went there for certain other reasons, which I'll talk about in a minute. But there were those, at least when they signed up, had legitimate faith in the system and believed that they were going to be doing their part. We were just talking about this, that the prior generations had served in the Great Patriotic War and the Virgin Lands, and now they were going to make their mark. And you know, there's no way to quantify this and say a certain percentage of people were, uh, to, to use a cliche, true believers. But I, I really believe this, having done a, a number of interviews, only some of which appear in the book. Uh, about the project that a lot of people, at least you know, more than uh, just a few, believe that this was a project worth their attention from purely ideological reasons. Uh, whether they were personal or collective, they, they had a, there was a systematic belief in uh, the progress of, of Soviet, uh, of, of Soviet uh, processes. Uh, on the other hand, of course, that doesn't fit everyone. And one thing I try to mention in the book is why those who are not ideologically uh, true believers would have gone to the project, and there's a very distinct financial reason. Um, again, all of this is possible, what I'm about to mention, because of the revenue that's uh, streaming into the country uh, from sales of things like petroleum. One is when you served in the, uh, on the, in the zone as, as a worker, you signed a contract for a standard uh, tour, typically one to three years, uh, depending on who you were and where you came from, but during that time, you received triple hardship pay. Now, of course, this is a non-convertible rubles, but considering the fact that uh, most jobs back in the European part of the country or in the Caucasus or in the Baltics or wherever these people came from paid far less than a job in, on bomb did, uh, this was a pretty lucrative thing. And some people made a lot of, of money in terms of, of cash. Now, whether they could actually spend that is a whole other issue, of course. Uh, but um, one other thing I mentioned is that the state uh, very uh, soon after the project began, began to dangle other incentives in front of prospective workers. One was apartment vouchers. Um, as you well know, Sean, uh, even in Russia now, but especially in this era that we're, we're talking about, uh, there was a severe housing shortage in the Soviet Union. Uh, a lot of people uh, had just moved out of these komunalki, you know, these collective apartments where they had lived with many families, and there was still a shortage of single apartments for single families. And if you served your full tour, uh, again, for most people it was three years. Uh, on, on the project, you have the uh, had the opportunity, as far as the state promised, to receive an apartment after your term of service was completed. All right, that's one promise. The other promise was, and this is the more extravagant of all of them, in fact, uh, is a new car. Sounds like something from a game show or something. <laughs> right. But this is exactly what was offered. Uh, this is a time when car ownership in the Soviet Union, private car ownership, was practically nil. 
And the notion of getting, you know, a Lada or some kind of, you know, cheap Volga perhaps or other car at the time was a huge incentive. Now, mind you, and this is where the cynicism can creep back in, is that these car vouchers, of course, were never honored. Uh, the apartment vouchers, very rarely. I, I tried to find anyone that I interviewed who actually got a new apartment because of their service. No one I talked to did. But it's easy to say that now. These people were promised this, and I think some people believe that these promises would be made good. So that was one of the reasons why people would go uh, to the project. So that, that's reason number two. So ideological true belief is number one, uh, financial incentive. And then the, the third aspect, which I think I mentioned in the book a couple of times, is escape. Uh, this notion of escape. Escape from what? Well, in some cases, escape from the drudgery of living uh, in you know, an apartment with your parents. Uh, there was this notion of adventure. Uh, some people escaped their past, uh, as, as you noted maybe in the book. Uh, there are people who had criminal records who came to BAM. In fact, a lot of them, some of them who actually were involved in law enforcement, uh, ironically enough. And these people came to BAM for other reasons, to get, get away from whatever their situation was. So th that's another reason why people, again, a half million people over 10 years would, would do such a thing. It's interesting that the idea of, of individualism, freedom, and escape kind of underlines all three of those, re those reasons, right? To escape the drudgery of that you don't have a revolutionary time for yourself, to get an apartment so you can have independence or a car so you can have independence, to get away from your parents or escape your past so you go to the Far East to, to, to achieve that. Um, and this, of course, this remoteness and this escape in the Far East, as you also note, contributes to a lot of um, bad things. Um, it contributes to crime, it contributes to theft, drunkenness, moral corruption, etc. Um, talk a bit about this, and uh, particularly how did the BAM administration try to regulate its workforce? Right. Well, one thing that's readily apparent is, is that this project was planned a lot on paper, but as far as actually telling workers what to do once they arrived and giving them the skills and equipment they needed, no matter there was a lot of money available or not, to do their job was woefully lacking. And many people uh, lived in uh, what we would consider in the West to be uh, pretty much uh, 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 unbelievably un uncomfortable conditions. Uh, people lived in uh, used uh, railway cars and uh, temporary housing in a place like Siberia where it's extremely hot in the summer and bitterly cold in the winter. Uh, basically, the infrastructure was unable to support this large workforce that came with very little preparation in advance. And from the very beginning, the local administration, especially in Tinda, this largest at that time, it's no longer that way now, the largest city in the BAM zone, were keenly aware of this. And there are reports being sent to Moscow all the time about we've got to improve housing, we've got to improve electrification, we've got to improve plumbing and things like that. Because not only are people uncomfortable, when they can't do their job, or aren't given the tools to do their job, they resort to the things you just mentioned. They drink, uh, they have a lot of sex, they steal, uh, they do whatever they can to divert themselves. And in many cases, not just that, but to keep themselves alive. Uh, this is a, a kleptocratic state in many ways, or a place where you simply have to steal to survive in many cases. And the state knew this from the get-go, but was either unwilling or unable, I would emphasize the latter here, to improve the situation throughout this 10-year period. You would think that things would have improved after a few years, but they really don't. One of the reasons is, is that the construction is always moving into new areas which have no infrastructure. This really is virgin territory. Uh, there's no one except for a few aboriginal peoples had ever been in this place and certainly never undertaken anything like building a railway. So to make the infrastructure that you need to support a large construction uh, population was simply out of the state's ability to provide. And uh, in many ways, uh, they simply solved the problem not by building the infrastructure necessary, but replacing dis 
dissatisfied workers, workers who had gotten in trouble for whatever reason, sending those people back at the end of their construction term uh, or even earlier in many cases before their contract was finished, and just bring a new crop of workers in from many places, as I talk about in the book. Many of these workers were from the Soviet Union of various ethnic groups, but many of them as well uh, were from abroad. And there's a lot of turnover. It's one of the things I, I, I try to emphasize is how few people stayed in the region for very long. So there's never any opportunity to see an improvement. Uh, in many cases, the people who served on BAM, their perspective was nothing ever changed for the better, that there was no progress in this place that the state was telling us was the vanguard, the, the, the front lines of progressive movements. And the state knew this and was unable to, to remedy it throughout this decade that I look at. And one of the things, though, you emphasize is there is attempt to try to get the workforce to 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 regulate it, to to punish it for theft and for gaft and embezzlement. Um, and you mentioned these um, these small militia groups, these drujini, as they're called. Uh, talk a little bit about those. Right. Those institutions, these Drujini, had been around since the 1930s, in fact, in different ways. And this is mostly a function of the youth culture of BOM. One of the things that I want to stress in the book is how young most of the people worked on this project. Uh, there were people in their teens, uh, 16, 17, 18, uh, and then the bosses of these projects were old men. Uh, you know, It's interesting that we use the term youth a little differently, but in the Soviet Union, these people were still considered youth at the age of 30. Uh, they were about the oldest people there. Uh, but the, the notion of self-regulation was one of the state's attempts to use its own population to do the work necessary, the physical labor, but in addition to that, to police itself. And this was an old tradition. It had been around for a long time. One of the reasons that the state had to do this was because, as I say in the book, there weren't enough official law enforcement personnel on site to police the population. The traditional method of law enforcement wasn't going to apply, especially when it came in terms of uh, in internal affairs ministry people. There simply weren't enough of those people there to police society as it would be possible in other parts of the country. So the state had no option but to use self-regulation, and these youth patrols were themselves uh, very susceptible to corruption. Some of them worked well, but a lot of them didn't because they could be bribed just as easily as any other official group could be. And in many cases, one of the things I mention is, is that these self-policing groups actually took the law into their own hands and broke the law, in many cases through theft and things like that, uh, because they could get away with it. They were the uh, most official, uh, highest level of, of jurisprudence in the area, and so there was no one to stop them. Uh, so basically what we're talking about is is a state where there was no social order and those that were brought in to enforce it actually uh, catalyzed the destruction of social order. So in other words, things didn't improve. Perhaps they got even worse uh, during this time. And these Drujini are, are very interesting because they're people who in many cases came as nobodies, and but they were local uh, big fish in a small pond. They were people who were given authority for whatever reason, Komsomol members, uh, children of party functionaries, for whatever reason – and they ran the, the, the system, the, especially the black market and some of the kind of unofficial gray market economies in the region with, with virtual impunity because, again, as I said, there was no official law enforcement structure in place. So these people uh, abused or misused, depending on how, how you want to phrase it, uh, their position to uh, create their own reality and their own uh, situation that benefited them in a place where uh, many times lawlessness was the, was the rule of the day. This is something you touch on a bit of uh, the economy, the economy of the of, of the BAM zone. Um, you have a lot of theft. Uh, people are selling things in a black market. Um, do you have a sense of how this economy worked or this alternative economy? Right. A lot of people I interviewed who, by the way, I should mention 
mention this. One of the reasons I don't have more of the interviews that I was mentioning is a lot of people would not speak to me on the record uh-huh. with their names. So that's one of the reasons that I know some of the reviewers have said, why not more uh, interviews? Well, I have a lot more, but I couldn't publish them because they would not give me their permission. As you probably well know, uh, if you bring out a tape recorder or a notepad, many Russians even today get nervous, mm-hmm. especially when you're writing a, a, a book that is not on a topic that today, uh, by the way, in Russia, you cannot speak ill of bomb. Bomb is now a big success story. So uh, this book is not terribly politically correct in Russia. Uh, but in any event, uh, I, would, I would argue there were two kinds of economies that existed, of course, in other places, but in the bomb zone where shortages were even more severe than they were in other parts of the country, they were even more essential to uh, day-to-day existence. Uh, one is the black market. That is the sailing, selling and, 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 and purchasing of absolutely illegal goods. Um, a lot of these came from outside of the country. Uh, one of the things that I found that was one of the most desired black market goods were Japanese electronics. Hmm. Right? This is the time when 8-track players were still popular, uh, you know, when cassette tapes were a new thing. And a lot of these products simply weren't available through legitimate channels. You could not go to a store, no matter how long you waited in line or how much money you had, and buy top-of-the-line Japanese electronics in an official store. They, they simply weren't available. Uh, you had to buy the uh, cheap uh, East German or you know, Polish or Soviet equivalent, which was uh, far inferior. But one thing we should... Uh, let our uh, your listeners know is that this area is c- fairly, relatively speaking, close to the tiger economies, especially of Japan in the 1970s and 80s. And these products were available on the black, black market. Uh, many of them were smuggled through China even then. Uh, smuggling between the border of Russia and China has been going on uh, for a long time. So those goods were available. And then there's this gray market. These are goods that were available uh, officially, but at prices that were usually too high or in quantities that were too insufficient for most people's day-to-day lives. And these are things that you had to have to get by, um, like vodka. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an essential thing. And the state monopoly was there, but people wanted vodka that was cheaper than it could be bought in the state store. So they bought this Samogon, this homebrew or moonshine, whatever you want to call it. Uh, there was a booming market for this. This wasn't brought from the in- outside. It was manufactured uh, locally, of course. And this just fuels the drunkenness, uh, the accidents, the poisonings, all the things that you see. Uh, and one of the things that's interesting is that the gray market for a lot of products that were available elsewhere in the Soviet Union, but that weren't in the BAM zone, fueled an entire uh, domestic trade between those, and a lot of people did do this, travel between the BAM zone and the other more developed parts of the country. And when they came back to the BAM zone, for whatever reason, they would bring these products back with them and sell them on this gray market. So they were bending the law. And this is all a regulation that the state, or I should say an economy, that the state couldn't regulate or was unwilling to regulate. And that is one of the reasons why I argue that this whole project spun out of its control. If you can't regulate basic economic activity for people who need these services and goods, uh, how do you possibly expect them to do their job as well? Mm-hmm. You can't. You can't provide them what they need. How can you expect them to build this railway, this impossible project, of course, uh, in 10 years? So th- these uh, economies are really essential to the understanding of this kind of wild east that, that, that's going on. I mean, that's not a term I've invented, but it really is a place where uh, the, the social mores of the time are much looser uh, in all aspects than they were uh, elsewhere in the country. Um, you turn after you talk about this this. The, the prevalence of kind of moral corruption, you then turn to the issue of women. About a, a third of the BAM workforce uh, were women. And and for those under for women under twenty, they were over half of the workforce, uh, which was quite quite interesting. Um, how was BAM related to the so called women's question in Soviet Russia? 
Right. Well, one of the reasons that there are so many young women is that because the project was, as I say in the book, mostly a Komsomol project, you know, Young Communist Youth League. Uh, this was uh, the idea of bringing young people in, and a lot of them uh, were female. I think the idea was if you bring women in for this Zhinsky Vapros, this women's question, you can show them that labor isn't necessarily going to be the double burden, that you can, in fact, work outside of the home without having to have the domestic toil that may have uh, been part of your life back wherever you came from, especially for young women. Many of them did not have families. Uh, the idea was that the state could show them a way where they could make their own careers without having to work about, you know, worry about domestic toil. Uh, unfortunately, there's another uh, trend at play here, and this comes into conflict with what's, what I was just mentioning. One of the ideas behind this project was to bring not just a temporary worker force to this area, but bring a permanent, large-scale settlement of this part of Siberia, which, as I mentioned earlier, had basically been uninhabited uh, since uh, you know, since the beginning. And the idea there was, wasn't to give women a liberating feeling or experience, but to make them or to encourage them to settle down and have children. Uh, again, the double burden of family excuse me, and work. And those two things uh, are working at the same time. They're parts of Soviet civil society, if you can use that term, certainly official society, that argue that you can be free here, you can be a laborer, you can advance in the party or wherever you come from uh, without the, the, the fetters of domestic toil. On the other hand, the state is also saying in other media outlets, you should stay and have children because this is an area that we need to, to develop. Uh, and I think the state never really figured out what it was going to do with women, which message was going to be more important than the other, because they are uh, contradictory. And as I, sh I argue in this chapter, a lot of women found that the progressive nature that they'd been told about, the goods simply weren't delivered, metaphorically speaking, when they arrived in the zone. The old sexual uh, discrimination was still there. In fact, it was probably even worse uh, out there. Uh, these are uncomfortable physical conditions on top of the misogyny that they had experienced elsewhere is intensified here. So this turned women off more than perhaps any other constituency of all of the constituencies that came to Van. I think women are the group that are lost the most. And if you lose the 51% minority, I'm sure you've heard that term before, then the project had no chance of success. Uh, either in terms of uh, showing uh, the liberating aspect of Soviet, uh, you know, Brezhnevian policies on the one hand, or this kind of older Stalinist pro-natal idea that the state also was trying to advance, uh, that failed too. So neither one of those was achieved, and the state really could not figure out uh, what to do about it. Mm -hmm. Just to go a little bit more about the, the the experience of women working in BEM, why don't you talk a little bit about the the the, the affair involving Tatiana Denisova? Oh, right. This is a very interesting example of one of the few women who actually had a fairly high position within the uh, BAM administration. Uh, Tatiana Denisova was the director of the, um, I forget the exact term, but it was basically the entire Railways annual music festival. And uh, for Westerners, this is kind of a strange thing, but I'm, as I'm sure you know, uh, playing of music is a big deal in Russian culture, uh, playing the guitar, reciting some Pushkin or something like that. And this was the big kind of annual festival, and she was in charge of the entire thing. Uh, then, though, she began to run afoul of official channels. And there's this uh, debate, or actually more like a uh, ad hominem attack that is, uh, emerges in the press uh, between uh, this woman and especially her, her um, denigrators, the people who argue that she, in fact, among other things, is a lesbian, which is interesting that you would see this. It's not mentioned as a word, but it's very strongly hinted at in the press that she's involved in this. And I think the reason that she's singled out for this reason is not her sexual orientation. That was used as 
has a a, a, a knife in her back, uh, but to sh- to to, to uh, make sure that this woman didn't become too powerful. I think there was a problem with having a woman who had her own ind- independent uh, realm of autonomy here. This was the thing that she actually ran, and that the state and the Komsomol, of course, were involved with. But this was her thing, her signature project for several years. And once that became, I think, of of concern to the state, she was brought down several pegs and eventually uh, dismissed from the program altogether. But I think it's an interesting story of how the rhetoric, of course, doesn't match up with reality, a place where women can be free and independent and successful. When there's a woman who actually achieves a modicum of this, like Denisova did, she's not allowed to continue it and actually, you know, in disgrace uh, is is forced to leave. Uh, One final point about this, though, which I find very compelling is there were many people who publicly came to her defense in the press. Uh, risking their own personal reputations uh, in, in, in the process, but saying that these accusations are false, uh, that she had done the very best job. This was a great entertainment venue uh, for workers who were overworked and, of course, getting into trouble all the time. And I think this Denisova affair is an example of how when the state decides to pull someone down a peg, not everyone agrees to it anymore. There are people who are saying, wait a minute, this has already happened. It's a fait accompli, but we're not going to say it's okay. And that's something I don't think you see as much prior to uh, the Brezhnev era, and certainly not as much in other parts of the country. Uh, my argument would be that this is more possible in this relatively free BAM zone than it would have been elsewhere in the country. So that's one of the reasons I focus on this kind of anecdotal example of a woman who gets into trouble. In addition to the so-called women's question, BAM, and this goes to your point about how BAM just kind of represents everything in a way, it also is related to the nationality question. Um, uh, why did the, the BAM administration play up its non-Russian volunteers? I think the state was very concerned with uh, some demographic trends that were becoming very clear in the country uh, by this time. One thing that we know, and this was never a big secret, is that non-Russian, especially more generally non-Slavic populations in the country were growing at a faster rate, uh, particularly uh, in Central Asia, particularly uh, Muslim populations. And the state, of course, had always argued that it had liberated the various peoples from the, use the Leninist term, uh, the prison of peoples, and that the state, in this case, could show to the outside world and perhaps as much as as that to its own population, that it really was uh, multicultural and multinational. And by bringing groups uh, disproportionately in some cases from the various non-Slavic republics, particularly from the Caucasus and Central Asia, it could show that this BAM zone for women as it had been in other groups could be liberating for non-Russian nationalities as well. Uh, But of course, we see that this doesn't work. Um, One thing that I found very compelling about this is that if you look at the uh, worker settlements of non-Slavic detachments who were sent along the railway uh, just like everyone else was, they were highly segregated. They were kept pretty much apart uh, from uh, the the Slavic groups. Uh, For instance, uh, in Azerbaijan, there was an institution called Azerbaijan Stroy. It was the chief construction uh, uh, group within the Azerbaijani Komsomol that was responsible for sending workers from Azerbaijan uh, to bomb throughout this 10-year period. And they they did so and, in fact, uh, built some, uh, some towns and things like that. But they almost worked completely alone. And this is a state that argues that all the nationalities of the Soviet Union work together to build communism. And yet, when you go out to this place, this you know, hothouse, this experimental place of, of cultural uh, multiculturalism, of, of ethnic cooperation, you don't see that. You see the old segregations again. But they're even more visible because everyone is in this relatively small space. They're not in Azerbaijan. They're not in Russia. They're close to each other, and yet they're working apart, uh, just like women did, by the way. Uh, And it's a good example of how the state attempts to do something but fails completely and, in fact, shows its own um, deficiencies when it tries to improve. 
Uh, a lot of people I talked to, by the way, most of whom were Slavs, argued that, that they never even talked to people who weren't Russian or weren't Ukrainian or Belarusian. They didn't see uh, Azeris or Armenians or Lithuanians. Those people all stayed to themselves. And it's interesting that I, I think you could argue a lot of this was self-segregation. Of course, officially they were positioned separately, but they could have socialized together. But, you know, as I mentioned in the book, a lot of the times when they did socialize, it ended up being bad. Uh, there was violence, instances of, you know, of course, fueled by alcohol, of course, uh, problems that laid bare the fiction of this cooperative society in terms of ethnicity. Uh, I think Baum shows it uh, in a very clear space that this was a fiction, uh, that uh, Russians were dominant uh, and they didn't want to deal with non-Slavic peoples unless they needed to. And mm -hmm. Baum shows them that they were a necessary evil, these non-Slavs, but they weren't going to be given equal status. And it's absolutely revealed by their participation. And, and I would also imagine, and maybe you can talk about this a bit too, is that because they're segregated, um, they are their conditions are different than, say, the average uh, Slavic um, volunteer. Can you talk a little bit about what were like what was life like for non-Slavic workers in Baum? Right. I mean, while life was difficult for everyone, everything I found uh, showed me that life was even more difficult for the non-Slavs. Um, the sending of housing materials. These people had to build their own homes, typically speaking, uh, dormitory blocks, uh, you know, uh, small um, uh, settlements and things like that of any kind. Uh, that the delivery of materials and qualified work people from the non-Slavic parts of the country was even slower and even less attentive to needs than it was for Slavic positions. So these people lived in the very worst conditions in an already difficult working environment. And one of the things you could you could extrapolate, I don't really say this to, too much explicitly in the book, but one conclusion that you could make is that not only did these people lose faith in bomb as they were working on the project, you know, being Azerbaijani or Lithuanian or Estonian, when they went back to their home region, usually not in Russia, uh, they uh, began to tell other people about their experiences, that this was a project that was supposed to deliver the goods, again, uh, in terms of so many re reasons, and, and it didn't do it. And you could argue, perhaps, if you wanted to take this argument to, a, to another step, that this is one one of the reasons why the ethnic fault lines in the Soviet Union began to appear just about the same time that BAM began to wind down in the mid-1980s. It's no coincidence that in 1986, there's a major revolt in Alma-Ata in Kazakhstan. I mean, it's all happening at the same time. Uh, and these BAM veterans, again, there are half a million of these people, many of whom were non-Slavs, going back and saying the state is treating us just like they are here. Not only are we second-class citizens in our own place, but we're second-class citizens in this new uh, location as well. And I, I think the state uh, really made a, a very fundamental mistake in uh, attempting to argue that everyone could be equal, and it doesn't allow those that in many cases volunteered from these non-Slavic areas for whatever reason, of course – to come to the project uh, to fulfill their obligations. They didn't even give them the chance to do good work because they simply weren't given the infrastructural and material necessities that they needed to succeed. Yeah, so in addition, it's interesting. So in addition to women, you have women, there's an effort to recruit them, there's an effort to recruit non-Slavs, but then you also have an effort to recruit foreign nationals, many of which uh, come from Eastern Bloc nations, but not only. Um, First, why did they recruit foreign nationals? And second, what, why would a foreign national want to come to the Soviet Far East and work in BAM? Right. Very good question. I think the first – the answer to the first question is is that the Soviet Union wanted to show that it still had the means of completing this project. It's, in fact, it's the same justification as 
the Soviet regime is giving to its own people. And to answer the question, why to build this? What's important about this? Uh, the Soviet Union, especially in the 1970s, this is something that had not existed as much in the past, had really extended its reach into a lot of countries that historically Russia or the Soviet Union had never been involved with. Uh, for example, uh, there are workers from many uh, client states in Africa and Asia who come to this project. And what they're supposed to do, at least as far as the state is concerned, is to see how great Soviets, the Soviet brand of socialism is, that they, their government is attempting to emulate, and see that in this inhospitable place with these difficult conditions, the state is able to achieve this great project, to build this huge railway. Uh, specifically about why would someone come to this project, most of the people who came to the project were not recruited in India or in Ethiopia or in Madagascar or wherever they happen to come from. They were recruited because they were already in the Soviet Union as exchange students. Uh, that's one thing I mentioned just to kind of in passing in the book is that a lot of these people go on what's called a tour de voice semester, this work semester. So basically you're given leave from whatever university uh, you're attending. By the way, many of these students were students at the Patrice Lumumba Friendship University in Moscow, a university for, I hate to use the term third world, but developing countries, uh, students, especially and it's still now, it's still operating. Day, uh, to come and study uh, at that time Soviet-style uh, economics, philosophy, history, and things like that. And so one of the, the understandings was is if, if you went to BAM and worked your semester, your billet, uh, your seat uh, back at the university in Moscow or wherever you came from would still be there. And if you didn't go, if you didn't volunteer, quote unquote, then you might lose that and have to go back to your home country. For many of these students, and I talked to one, one of them I made good friends with who was actually from Kenya, uh, who uh, was a student at the university around this time, uh, was that these people had, speaking of living conditions, much better conditions at the Lumumba Institute than they did back home. Really? They're privileged positions. Yes. I mean, to go abroad to the Soviet Union was quite a coup. It was quite an honor, uh, and so they would do whatever it took to to keep that position, to keep uh, their enrollment in this whatever university they came from. So they, in many cases, had no choice but to go to bomb. But this too backfired. Uh, they saw that they were segregated. Uh, many of these people didn't speak Russian very well, and they were told to do the most menial of tasks. A rail lane, by the way, was the glamour profession. That was what the best and the brightest were given uh, as, as, as tasks. If you laid rail, that was the big job. But a lot of other things had to be done. One of the things I mentioned in the chapter about this is installing a toilet. Uh, something that had to be done, right? You're building infrastructure, um, laying of sewers and things like that. Somebody had to do this. And invariably, a lot of uh, non-Slavs and uh, non-Soviet citizens, especially from the developing countries, uh, the uh, sub-equatorial countries in particular, uh, were given this um, uh, these jobs rather than the kind of higher uh, uh, echelon foreigners like East Germans and Poles and people from the Warsaw Pact. There was a hierarchy, I, I, what I'm trying to say is, even between the foreigners who came, uh, East Germans and people from the developing countries were not treated the same. Uh, they were given uh, different professions based on their location. And uh, invariably, those from the poorest of the Soviet client states tended to get the worst jobs. Wow. So in a, in a way, and I think this goes to a larger point of your book and its significance, is that you really get a microcosm of Soviet society um, in terms of gender relations, in terms of ethnic relations, and of course discrimination against different types of foreign nationals. Um, it's quite a fascinating uh, a way to look at what late 70s socialism is like. Um, and to that effect, uh, for you, instead of having me talk about it, what, what does BAM say about late Soviet socialism? And, and what, does it what does its tragic legacy represent? 
I, I suppose the conclusion that I draw is this is a, uh, a, a indication of a society that still believed it could achieve the great projects, but in a different way. The projects of the past, for most of them, all the big railways that had been built, and I mentioned them in the book, had been built mostly through coercive labor or under threat of war, uh, that the Soviet Union had to build these things because its very life uh, was uh, at stake. Uh, this is not the same project. It's big in scale, and in fact, it's similar to pr earlier projects like this. But even the Virgin Lands was about something that this isn't. This is about motivation. The Virgin Lands was about grain, about feeding the country. BAM was never about that. It was about building a path to the future. This is a trope that's used again and again in the propaganda of the, of the era. And I think the state really believed that this could be achieved using a new dynamic, using untested young Komsomol members instead of military conscripts and prisoners of war. All right. Instead of using people who had a motivation for survival, uh, to use them for a, process, a purpose of motivation. And that, I think, indicates that the state increasingly, and this is, I think, more true in the Brezhnev period than ever before, had lost touch with its own constituencies. It had lost the ability to understand what motivates people besides fear. All right. That patriotism and many of the factors that allowed the Soviet Union to win the Second World War had been lost. And the state simply didn't realize what it took to reinvigorate its own population. It was willing to spend massive amounts of money, great material and human resources on a project that ultimately at the time that I'm looking at, which concludes in 1984, uh, was an absolute disaster. And in fact, it didn't improve anything, I would argue. It made things much worse. Um, I'm not going to argue that the collapse of the Soviet Union was due completely in part to BAM. Of course, I wouldn't make that argument. But I think the argument can be made. It's one of several contributing factors that leads, you know, within just a few years after the project is kind of taken off the official shelf, so to speak, uh, that the Soviet Union does break apart. Uh, these are people who see firsthand that the state cannot, again, as I've been saying, uh, deliver the goods. And they just don't keep that to themselves. They go home and tell everyone who will listen about this. And that's what's interesting. On the one hand, that if the if the state is looking to, you know, make touch with its its citizens and it's lost touch with its citizens, and in order to regain that, it does a project way out in one of the remotest parts of the nation, which, as you say, reveals all of the the contradictions that that exist in that society. It's quite a fascinating um, <laughs> an, a, a process that happens. Yeah, it definitely is. And um, one of the things that's been interesting when I speak to Russians about this project, they always tell me it's only because of fear of China. That was the only reason the state did this. Well, if that was the case, if that were true, they would have gone to the old proven model of using uh, soldiers. Oh, by the way, soldiers did work on the railway. Uh, I didn't have access to the archives, but I say in the book about 25 percent of the rail of the labor was done by, by troops, uh, conscripts. Uh, but they would have not relied on an inher inherently unreliable population group to do this if it had been for national security only. If it had been that important to build a railway as such, but it wasn't. And it's indicative of the fact that when the railway was declared complete in 1984, it was far from complete. Uh, by the way, um, you didn't ask me this, but the irony is today is that the railway finally works. After so many years of being kind of forgotten, it's finally finished because of Putin. Putin is the one person in the so post-Soviet regime who has championed this project. And now it's since 2003, it's been completed and it's actually up and running. Uh, the irony is that it's already obsolete. It's single track, not completely electrified, and that the project that this was supposed to replace 
Bam was supposed to, of course, replace the Trans-Siberian. The Trans-Siberian, of all things, is more technologically advanced than Bam is today. Hmm. So that's so where that's where Bam stands at the moment. It's, it's right. It is the is the poor stepchild of the older railway that it was supposed to improve upon. Wow. And so for, for all of this, all of the negativity that was the product of this, all the propaganda, this house of cards that the state worked so hard to create, uh, the fact is that, that it wasn't done when it was supposed to be done. And when it was finally finished, it was already obsolete. And so that's the, I guess, the final tragic legacy. And, and, I, and I use the word tragic not for hyperbolic reasons, but if for no other reason, the environmental damage that was done in the name of this project was so, uh, so uh, you know, devastating, so uh, universal, uh, that that is a reason to say that this project was a failure. If no other reason than just for that, is that this environmental damage was 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 undertaken at, for for you know for no reason. But you know it, it is a legacy of a time when the state simply had uh, you know uh, great resources and little understanding of what it took. Uh, you know Brezhnev by this time and all of his cronies are old men, all right. And the people they leave this project to are in their thirties. They're people who don't understand. Uh, what it took to win a war, what it took to rebuild Soviet society after the war. They're coming from this completely new. And the results, I suppose, in the end were very predictable. No. Well, the book is a fascinating look at at, at the nineteen seventies through one major project and, and how it illuminates so many so many issues. You did, did a wonderful job. Um, just to uh, wind down the interview, so what are you up to now? What's what's in store next? Right. Well, aside from the uh, journal editing that we talked about, um, my next project is on what's called Sibaral, which is a proposal. It's been around, in fact, for over 150 years of taking most of the rivers that flow from uh, the south to the north in Siberia, the same place we were just talking about, and reversing their flows so that they flow south. Uh, some of the greatest rivers in the world are flowing into the, uh, from this perspective, unused Arctic Ocean. And this has been an idea that's gotten traction again. It's very interesting, and this will be a big project that I'm just getting started on. But beginning in the 1850s, again around the turn of the 20th century, uh, again in the 1960s and 70s, and then again in very recent years, this project has been given a green light by the various regimes, imperial, uh, Soviet, and now post-Soviet, for, for various reasons. But one of the things that's so compelling about this is is that the reason for this project isn't to build a path to the future. It's very simple. It's the one resource that is irreplaceable. It's water. And Russia today realizes that if it could ever do this, and there's some very grandiose plans, uh, by the way, you may not know this, and then the early 70s, they actually detonated a few small tactical nuclear devices in the Volga River Basin to begin this process, and the program was abandoned in the late Gorbachev years due to this environmental movement, among other things, uh, that we were talking about. But that the state today sees that uh, petroleum resources are finite uh, and perhaps something that the world will be able to move from eventually, but water will never be replaced. And that this, the, the Russian uh, state, especially Putin and uh, prior to his dismissal, Mayor Lushkov of Moscow, realized that this was a way to interject Russian influence back into Central Asia because those places have a lot of petroleum resources in some of the republics now countries, but they're water poor for the most part. And Russia has water in abundance. And if that this Sibaral project was uh, responsible for redirecting the flows back into the Aral Sea, by the way, which has basically disappeared, uh, that this would be a major coup in terms of um, uh, environmental advantage for the state. There's also an environmental, sorry, I should say economic advantage for the state. There's also an environmental idea here is that the Aral Sea could be saved by doing this. 
never mind you the incredible environmental damage that would be done by reversing these river flows. But there's a notion that we can help the environment. We can refill the Aral Sea and also help out the Caspian too. So there's this notion that we'll destroy the environment in order to save it, which I find very compelling. So uh, this is a major project. Uh, I'm kind of moving into the realm of environmental history. So that's the next uh, thing on my plate at the moment. Mm -hmm. Wow, that sounds great. Now I'll pay pay more attention to articles about water in in Russia. I had no idea about this. This is a fascinating project. Well, thank you very much um, for for talking to me about about your book. Um, It was quite a pleasure. My pleasure, Sean. All right. Thank you. I've been speaking with Chris Ward about his book, Brezhnev's Folly, the Building of BAM, and Late Soviet Socialism. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in next week when New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies talks to Lori Manchester about her book, Holy Father's Secular Sons, Clergy, Intelligentsia, and the Modern Self in Revolutionary Russia. Until then, goodbye.